Our sermon text today comes from Psalm 42 and actually 43 as well. But as we come to this, as we've done before, it's important for us to remember that the key to understanding any psalm is understanding the worldview behind it. Uh, We're going to use these questions and answers again that were written by Jay Sklar that encapsulate the worldview beneath the psalm, this worldview that flows from knowing the Lord, both what He's like and what He does. So can we get those up? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll read the questions if you'll read the answers. Who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice. What does He do? He blesses and protects those who embrace His covenant from the heart while demonstrating His justice against those who rebel against Him. When does He do these things? Often in the here and now, and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Embrace His covenant from the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for his justice. That worldview is what's running beneath this psalm today, these psalms today. Uh, And we are going to do something a little different, cover both Psalm 42 and 43 together. Now, these could be taken independently, of course, but I want you to notice a couple of things. First, there is actually one single heading that covers both of the psalms. The, The one heading of to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Second, both of the Psalms are going to ask the same question. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Which links these two Psalms conceptually. Finally, you'll notice that the same refrain that appears twice in Psalm 42 is also in Psalm 43. And so together, these two Psalms form one sadly beautiful song with three stanzas and a refrain repeated three times. And together, these psalms help us learn how to talk to ourselves the right way amid various times of trouble, returning us to our singular hope in God. So let's listen to them together. But first, let's pray as we come to hear God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord God, you led your people through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. And so guide us now through the preaching of your word that, following our Savior, we may walk through the wilderness of this present age toward the glory of the age to come. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Psalm 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God, my salvation, and my God. My soul is cast down within me. 
Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you can come up and join me. Come on up. Holly, you want to come? That's fine. You can stay. (laughs) All right, so listen, guys, I'm going to tell you about one of the earliest memories that I have. I think I was right about Daniel's age when I had this. Yeah, actually, I think I was too. One of my earliest memories was when I almost drowned. My family was at Clarks Hill Lake, big lake near where I grew up in Augusta, and I was about two years old. I, I only remember a little bit of it. I was playing on a float in some of the deeper water, I think. Uh, But the next moment, I remember going under the water. I I couldn't swim, and I remember starting to feel desperate as the light above me started turning sort of a brownish-green color because the water was over my head. I couldn't get back up, and I was running out of air. But, but I can still picture this. I can close my eyes and I can see it. Through that brownish-green water, I saw my mom crashing through the water on her way to rescue me. She reached down, she grabbed me, and she lifted me up. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's funny because somehow I was not actually surprised to see her. Helping me was just what mom did, right? So I I kind of expected her to save me. I mean, that's what your moms do, right? Like, they they love us, they keep their eyes on us, and they rescue us when we need help. Well, we hear that same kind of confidence in Psalm 42 and 43. The singer feels like he's underwater. His life is totally overwhelming to him and out of his control. And it makes him super sad. It even makes him scared. 
But even in his sadness, he remembers that God loves him and God sees him. And so he does something really interesting. The psalmist talks to himself. Isn't that weird? He talks to himself. He reminds himself that he never really has any other hope than God. But he clings to that hope in God, even when he's sad. And so you guys might feel super sad about some things in your life right now. And it's okay to say that out loud. It's okay to say that to yourself. It's okay to say that to God. It's even okay to say that to other people. But it's also good for you to remind yourself to look up to the God who loves you. Uh, Whatever sad thing that you're going through, that's not going to be the end of the story for you. You can trust that this God, he's the one who is going to rescue you in the end. He's going to grab you and he's going to hold you close. How do we know that, though? Well, we can know that that's what he's going to do because he has already come running to us. Jesus being born and living and dying and rising again, that was kind of like my mom at the lake, only better, because Jesus didn't just come crashing into the water. Jesus came crashing into death itself so that he could rescue us from it. He did that because he knew that we were helpless, he, and he did that because of his incredible love for us. And so whenever you're feeling sad, I want you to talk to yourself, okay? Uh, I want you to remind yourself that your hope is in the God who loved you enough to send Jesus for you. I'm going to remind you of that too, and we're going to believe that good news together, okay? All right. Thanks, guys. Y'all can go back to your seats. Dude, moms are the best. Moms save us. They, they do everything they can to help us. Well, please do turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42 if you haven't already. And I want us to, to start by asking this question. What is something that we all do, but we tease each other for doing? Now, actually, there are several answers for that. But let me, let me just point out one. We, like I was telling the kids, we do talk to ourselves. I know that we sometimes joke that talking to yourself isn't really a problem unless you start answering yourself. But here in these Psalms, even that assumption itself gets challenged. Because here, not only do the writers, the sons of Korah, not only do they talk to themselves, they also answer themselves. And so I want us to think carefully about how we talk to ourselves. Because I'm convinced that the problem is not whether or not you talk to yourself or answer yourself. That is totally unavoidable. Although some people will speak out loud and others are going to keep their conversation inside their own head. Because it's it's unavoidable because there are loves and there are pressures that force speech from our lips. The overflow of wounded and longing hearts that overflow has to go somewhere. So the problem isn't actually talking to yourself. Rather, you hurt yourself or you help yourself, depending on how you answer yourself. And so we need to learn how to answer ourselves well in the circumstances that we all face. And so to begin, I want us to look at verses 1 through 5, Psalm 42, 1 through 5, and let's ask this first question. 
What do you say when you are in a drought? What do you say when you're in a drought? The imagery here in verse 1 is vivid. Uh, imagine yourself in an arid land where water is the most precious resource there is. Wealth means nothing when you're dying of thirst. For animals, too, there are parts of the world where the scarcity of water means they are on an endless search for it. And that thirst only becomes greater when they've been on the run from a predator. And so here in verse 1, the panting deer becomes the psalmist's picture of himself. In verse 2, we hear what he's thirsty for. He's thirsty for the living God, and desperately so. Now, his vulnerability here is really striking. He's thirsty precisely because he has set his hopes on this God. In a world of alternatives, he longs only for the living God of Israel. He's thirsty because, as one puts it, he will not settle for less than this God. He has chosen the blessedness of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, not the deceptive ease of those who are full now. And so he's thirsty for God, but we need to ask why. Well, there seems to be a problem of distance here. In the second line of verse 2, we hear his heart's question, When? When shall I come and appear before God? He's so thirsty because he's far away from God's presence. He's far from the source of life and refreshment. Now, I want to be really clear here. The God for whom the singer thirsts is not, is not like the other so-called gods of the ancient world, of the Canaanite peoples. Those gods were local deities. They were usually confined to the borders of a particular nation. But this God, the God of the Bible, is the maker of the heavens and the earth. The world and its fullness cannot contain him. And he is everywhere so that even if the singer should make his bed in the depths of the ocean, even so God would be there. And so if God is everywhere, then why should he be thirsty for him? Why should he be missing and distant from his presence? Why is he experiencing this drought? Well, if you look at verses 3 and 4, we get the answer. He's thirsty because his salty tears have been his food day and night, while his enemies surround and taunt him. And he's thirsty because he is far from the place of God's special presence and people. Think about his enemies. They taunt him with this persistent, discouraging question of where is your God? Now, we don't know exactly what he's experiencing that makes them ask that question, but experience tells us that it doesn't take much for unbelievers to question the presence or even the existence of God. When God's ways become inscrutable, one says, those who have declared faith in him are vulnerable to ridicule. And when that mocking question hits a heart that struggles itself with doubts and fears, then we shouldn't be surprised that tears of anguish flow. But you have to understand that enemies aren't his only problem. In verse 4, we hear how it's actually his memory of how things used to be that emphasizes the drought he's presently experiencing. He aches with longing 
because he misses the place of God's special presence and his people. He says he used to go along with the glad multitude of joyous worshipers, shouting and singing praise, but now he's alone, except for taunting enemies. He used to lead the crowd up to the house of God, that special place of God's presence in the world. But now, as he indicates in the second part of verse 5, he's far away from Jerusalem, way up in the wild north of Israel. To the singer, absence from the house of God, from the temple, is no small thing. Because the temple was the place where God and his people came together. It was the place, the only place, where the sacrifices were made to atone for sin. It was the only place where the work of the priest at the altar could assure the singer that he really was at peace with God, that he had been restored to fellowship with him. And so at this point in the story, the house of God was the primary means of grace. It was the way that God communicated himself to his people, both individually and as a whole. And as that whole community of believers gathered there together, it was a source of deep joy and encouragement to the singer. And so this distance from both the means of grace and his brothers and sisters left him panting and thirsty. Now here in Cleveland, we've been in a drought of a sort over the last couple of weeks, right? Uh, the, The lawns in my neighborhood are looking pretty rough. I saw a neighbor cutting his brown grass a couple of days ago. I don't really know why. I don't know how much he was cutting because nothing's really growing. But what he did kick up was a cloud of dust with his riding lawnmower that swirled over the top of his house. It was a cloud that was so big it looked like it would choke a man or at least make him really thirsty. Likewise, when you and I are in a drought of the soul when the heat and the dust of our circumstances fill our throats, we know what it means to be thirsty for this God. So maybe you feel like you're in a drought today. And maybe that's because the taunting questions about God's faithfulness or even His existence are troubling you. Maybe it's the fact that His kingdom is so veiled to us right now. That's difficult for you today. Or maybe it's the reality that his ways are often so confusing. That's what's bothering you right now. When a 20-year-old needs a heart transplant, or when your spouse remains your primary source of pain, or when people who don't know the Lord eagerly promote things that are deeply wrong as if he doesn't exist, the tears that we shed over these troubling things can leave us desperately thirsty. For the living God to hurry and show himself. But maybe your drought stems from distance from God. For too long you've been distant from the worshiping community of our God. Or you've been neglecting the means of grace that he has given to you. His word, the sacraments, prayer. Maybe you've forgotten that God's spirit most often works through his word and his people. Maybe you've been living an isolated life. 
At the beginning of the pandemic, when we were apart for so many weeks, didn't we begin to keenly feel that thirst for community, for the simple joy of worshiping together in the same place before God? Maybe you are here, but you aren't actually experiencing that joy of worship. Maybe this just feels like a burdensome duty to you. If so, do you have the humility to ask, why do I feel like that? Are you willing to venture into that deep recess in your heart and have that conversation with yourself? Because if you can't be honest with yourself about the drought that you are in, if you can't be honest with yourself that you're actually dying of thirst for the living God, then how are you ever going to be how are you ever going to seek him? How are you ever going to be satisfied by him? For whatever the reason for your drought, what are you saying to yourself in the midst of it? How should we answer ourselves when we notice how thirsty we are for God? Well, I want you to listen to what the singer says to himself. First, he asks himself a question. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Do you notice how honest the singer is with himself? He acknowledges the reality that he is truly struggling. He doesn't hide it from himself, from God, or from others. I mean, after all, he published this song for other people to sing. Are you so honest? Are you actually acknowledging the negative emotions that you are carrying inside of you? You need to understand that it is not a pious thing to pretend that you are fine when you are dying of thirst. Christian stoicism is not Christian. But Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our God is a God who actually invites people to be honest about our sad feelings and to bring those to Him. But after being honest about what he's experiencing internally, listen to what the singer does next. He speaks to himself, pointing himself away from himself toward the God who blesses the mournful poor in spirit. Hope in God. He says to his own soul, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist can say this because he knows that his God is the same as the God in our call to worship this morning. The, the, the God who says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. And it's because he knows that this God is the source of such life and refreshment. It's by knowing that and reminding himself of that that the singer is supported. His situation doesn't change. But he's supported as he speaks to himself of a hope that is outside of himself and outside of his drought-conditioned circumstances. Another said that this self-communing, this talking to yourself, this self-communing is an important dialogue between the two aspects of every believer who is at once a man of convictions and a creature of change. He is called to live in eternity. His mind stayed on God. 
but also in time, where mind and body are under pressures that cannot and should not leave him impassive. If, if even our Lord Jesus could say as he faced the cross, now is my soul troubled, then do you think that our Heavenly Father would begrudge such honesty from us? Because you and I have set our hopes on God and nothing less, we are bound to face distress in this present evil age. But from the psalmist, we can learn how to endure through these dry seasons because the one in whom we trust is the source of life and refreshment for his people. Through the prophet, he promised he would come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And has he not already begun to keep that promise? Has he not already refreshed our hearts with the gospel of his son? Haven't those spring rains already begun? So speak to yourself of your hope in him, because this drought that you're in, it can't last. Your good shepherd, who is your salvation and your God, he will lead you through this dry valley to the quiet waters once again. And so we speak hope in him to ourselves through these times of thirst. But as anybody who's spent time on rough rivers or in the ocean will tell you, too much water is as dangerous as too little, right? And so we need to consider another question. What do you say when you're drowning? What do you say when you're drowning? That's right, help. Look at the second stanza of this psalm, picking up in the second part of verse 5 through verse 11. Even after he has spoken to himself words of hope in God, he continues to experience this persistent negative feeling. Still, he says, his soul is downcast within him. And he feels again the distance between where he is and where he wants to be. Now, we don't know exactly where the psalmist is or why he's there. We know that he's somewhere in the north of Israel, far away from Jerusalem in the temple. He's up near the headwaters of the Jordan River, near the slopes of Mount Hermon. It's a rugged land where the course of the river is blocked by boulders. It plunges over waterfalls. And that booming and hissing sound which is actually echoed in the language of the Hebrews, but it's kind of lost to us English speakers, that, that booming and hissing matches the turmoil that's inside of him. Even the opening words of verse 7 there, deep, it calls to mind the chaos of the waves at the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, when the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Looking at the breakers and waves going over the head of the singer, another said, this is the picture of all that is overwhelming. His footing is gone, and wave after wave is submerging him. Jonah once felt the same way. In the belly of the great fish, as he prayed to the Lord, saying, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. On the one hand, the, the singer in verse 8, he knows that the steadfast love of the Lord remains. And so he prays to God. But in his prayer in verse 9, he asks, 
why God has forgotten him. He asks the same question that we ask sometimes. If, if it is true that God is the God of steadfast love, then why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why does he continue to experience the wounding taunts of the enemy who keeps on asking, where is your God? These are the questions of one who is overwhelmed and confused. Life is not turning out as he expected, especially because he knows who the Lord is. The, uh, he, he actually names the covenant name of the Lord here in this verse. It's the one time that that covenant name is used in these two psalms. He knows that Yahweh commands his steadfast love. But meanwhile, he's slipping down beneath the waters of suffering. Like me, when I was drowning as a kid, the light for him is already obscured by the brownish green of the waters over his head, and he cannot catch a breath. And you know what that feels like. Some of you are in those same waters of suffering today. How are you talking to yourself in them? How are you talking to yourself in the deep? Are you telling yourself that you really are forgotten? Are you functionally believing that the enemy is going to have the last word over you? The singer knows those fears. And yet, and yet, yet his faith keeps asserting itself. Yes, his soul is indeed downcast, but that lamentable condition becomes the occasion for him remembering the Lord. In verse 6, Therefore, he says, I remember you. And again, he turns himself outside of himself, outside of his situation again, to focus his attention on the Lord who commands his steadfast love and care for his people. And in this, maybe, as he is in the deep, maybe he's remembering that even in the beginning, above that chaotic deep, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, bringing order and creating life. Even here in the depths, the psalmist remembers that his hope exists above him, outside of him. His hope remains in his God who knows how to calm the turmoil inside of him. But his hope goes further, and I want you to notice this. Look at verse 7. He acknowledges that even the breakers and waves that are over his head, even they are God's breakers and God's waves. They belong to God. They were sent from God. They are accomplishing God's purposes. And although those waves are strange instruments, the singer continues to trust in the Lord who saved Noah through the waters of judgment who rescued Moses from the river in that little ark, who made Israel pass through the depths of the Red Sea, and who sent his people across the Jordan on dry land. The singer trusts in the Lord and talks to himself again, questioning his own downcast and tumultuous soul and pointing himself back up again to his hope. As another notice, there is no easing of the stress that he is facing, but... But the emotions that he experiences now have the background of strong conviction. Conviction 
that the flood will not prevail over him because the Lord is his salvation. And he is yours too. For all of you who feel yourselves slipping beneath the waves of trouble at work or at home, at school or in relationships, in culture or in the church, in your body or in the body of the ones that you love, take heart that he who spoke the wind and the waves into existence, who calmed the stormy waters with his word, he is still with you to save you. He has not forgotten you or his steadfast love. He remains the rock on which we stand, and that rock cannot be moved. And you need to speak to yourself that way when you are feeling overwhelmed in the depths. As we come to the final stanza, which is actually Psalm 43, we hear that the troubles of the psalmist continue. He's still mourning the oppression of the enemy, just the same as he was in 42.9. And so here we need to ask one more question. What do you say against the dark and the deceit that you encounter? What do you say against the dark and the deceit? Although the singer returned to his hope again at the end of Psalm 42, it seems, as another says, the storm of suffering has given no signs of abating. It continues into Psalm 43. The, the singer needs defense from those who care nothing for the Lord or his ways. He needs defense from those who are content with lies and who deal out oppression because it suits their selfish purposes. And here and now, you and I can identify with that. We know how persistent evil is. We are familiar with the deceitfulness of human beings. And what's more, we are tempted to believe the lies of the darkness because we know that that deceitfulness of humanity is in us too. Some of you have maybe heard, uh, have maybe heard me mention in the past anti-psalms. Uh, anti-psalms is basically the idea that you take the words of the psalm and you flip it upside down. You make it anti and it's a strange thing to do, but I actually believe it's a helpful tool for discovering the lies that we are functionally believing, the, the lies that we are tempted to believe. Uh, if you want to learn more about how to do that, I'd be happy to, to walk you through that. But, but we have to acknowledge that we are tempted to repeat to ourselves the, those old lies that have been around ever since the garden, those lies that question the trustworthiness of God, the, the lies that tell us that life can be, part, can be found apart from him on our own terms. The, the lies that add to God's word and therefore distort it. Or the lies that take away from God's word and so twist it. But, but though he is facing these dark fears and, and needing help, needing refuge against these lies... The, those fears of the psalmist are actually given full voice here. He still feels rejected. His soul remains downcast. But even so, what is striking in this third stanza is that the singer prays increasingly more hopeful prayers. This pattern of talking to himself is actually helping him. Uh, listen, he was thirsty back in verse 1. He was drowning in verse 6. But here, at the beginning, in Psalm 
43, he prays simply for vindication. He, he wants his trust in the Lord to be publicly proven as right. He, he's run to the Lord as his refuge. And so he prays expecting real protection from the darkness and from the lies that he faces. But, but what's actually interesting here is that we hear most clearly about the darkness and the lies through a positive request in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He asked the Lord, Send out your light and your truth. Send out your light and your truth, because only His light and His truth can drive back the darkness and dispel the lies. God leads His people. He leads them by His light and truth, and through them He brings His people back from whatever far country they have been in. He brings them back home to him. And that homecoming is what the psalmist is looking forward to in verse 4. When he'll return again to the presence and to the people of God, then he's going to go to that altar again and enjoy restored communion with his God. There he's going to again make music with the people of God to the God of his salvation. And so, yes, at the end of Psalm 43, there in verse 5, for now the psalmist must speak in the dark to his downcast soul. He must ask himself why his soul is in turmoil within him. But he may also speak hope to himself because he knows that the Lord is able to do what he can't do for himself. The Lord can send out his light and his truth to bring him back from that far country. The Lord can satisfy his thirst and rescue him from the deep and vindicate him fully. And here and now, you and I face the same darkness that we cannot dispel on our own. And so I have to ask you again, how are you talking to yourself? What are you saying to yourself as the storm of suffering goes on? But it's actually here that you and I can speak a better word to ourselves than even the psalmist could. Because although the psalmist looked forward to the coming light and truth of God, we have already seen it dawn in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the light of the world that shines on those who have walked in darkness. He came, John said, full of grace and truth. He himself is our God and has become our salvation. And he became so because he experienced the same thirst, the same depths, the same darkness that you and I endure. Taunted by his enemies, thirsty for righteousness, forsaken and far away from his Father, Jesus hung on the cross so that your deep thirst for God could be satisfied. Alone, beneath the waters of suffering, Jesus sank under the waves of God's wrath so that you might not drown in those depths, but rather be lifted up with him to live forever before the face of God. Jesus did not defend himself against the lies of men, choosing rather to endure the darkness of the tomb so that he might bring us back from that far country of sin and death. Back to the Father whose purpose from before time was to dwell with his people. And so the gospel assures us that not even our own sin can stop him from bringing us home. Because Christ himself was crucified to cancel our sin. 
to open the way, to bring us in, and to make us secure. And it's actually here at the Lord's table that God confirms those promises to us to strengthen us in our weakness. He he confirms our hope in Christ. Are you thirsty? Come in faith and drink. Are you drowning? Take hold of the bread of life and find your footing on Him. Are you groping around in the dark? God's light and His truth have shone on us in His Son. So eat and drink in faith and say to your soul, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God.